I think each community is very wise, very has wisdom, and they know what works for them. And so we have to really listen to what they're telling us about what their needs are and how to solve those needs. One of the greatest things about this country, at least in my opinion, is the diversity of background of everyone who lives here. Cultures from around the globe converge here and now call this great place their own. The fastest growing and largest ethnic minority group are Latinos. In fact, projections tell us that 128 million Latinos will live in the United States by 2050. Latino women will make up 25% of the total female population. This vibrant and growing group of women will help define what our country looks like for years to come. And yet they're experiencing barriers to healthcare that others aren't. I'm Suzanne Stone, and this is the More Than Pink podcast. Jill Ramirez has made it her personal mission to make sure the Latino community in Central Texas has health care. She's spent decades educating her community, training community health workers, and making sure Latinos know how to access health care. Jill, you've been working in the Latino community for decades. What is it about health care in the Latino community that is so challenging? Well, I, I think there's several things that uh, that we have to factors that affect our community. Of course, uh, you know, economically, a lot of our communities are depressed, and so when you don't have enough to go around, you know, you have to think about what's important in your life. And a lot of times, just basic needs take over. You know, paying your rent, having a roof over your head, having food at the table. And so uh, economics really affect a lot of our uh, health uh, choices. And so, you know, prevention services, um, access to health care are really impacted by, by the economic situation families find themselves in. So it's interesting, you know, the Latino community is projected to be at 128 million people living in the United States by 2050. That's a significant portion of the population. So yeah, so when you when we think about that population not being healthy, that's going to affect affect a lot of things, not just the the women and the families that are not necessarily as healthy as they could be, but the economy of the country as a whole. Absolutely. I think when you have any group that is not healthy, it really affects uh, a lot of policy, you know, how are you going to spend those dollars? You know, who, or also, if you're not healthy enough to work, who is going to be working? Who is going to bring bringing in uh, the the money that traditionally you have workers that bring in, you know, uh, that do the work, and then that they bring in, uh, you know, the money for older people, like who are in Social Security, Medicaid. So... Yes, we're a young population, and so when we look at, you know, education and how are we educating our kids so that they can actually become productive members of society, they can actually help older people. And so that's just another way to look at it. Um, 
so we're, you know, yes, we're a large group that is going to be, uh, and so we need to really target that group to uh, make sure that they get all the services they need so that they can be the best they can be as, as human beings. When we talk about education levels, because really it has to all start there. Yeah, right. You, it, it, start, it starts with education. So we do may have some education, education and health literacy levels, because a lot of times you can have high levels of education, but very low literacy levels. And so you have actually two factors, right? Perhaps low level of education, in addition to health liter- low health literacy level. And so you already have two whammies right there. So um, yeah, we need to have excellent education services uh, for our families and at the same time uh, have education about health literacy, what is health, you know, what is, what are, um, you know, how do you maintain a healthy lifestyle. Unfortunately, a lot of times people have to make decisions based on economics, whether they have, are able to have a good diet versus a diet they can afford only. A lot of times our families cannot um, live in areas where they can't really exercise and we don't have good parkland, stuff like that. So uh, there's a lot of factors that really are affecting the health of our community, aside from, you know, just like them not being able to uh, have uh, money to go see a doctor, you know, that which is dealing with access, but the other, what we call social determinants of health. In Austin, as you know, how difficult, how expensive it is for us to live here. And so a lot of our communities moving into areas surrounding Austin where there's very little infrastructure. And so there's really nowhere for them to go and buy, you know, healthy food or for them to be able to go out and exercise. And or for them, it's stress. And so that affects your mental health. Um, I think I might have gone off on tangent from education, but it 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 really all is a is a snowball effect. Yes. I want I want to go back to you know that that social level of what is what is healthy. So in the Latino community, when you when we say you know are you healthy, what would a Latino woman define as healthy? Well, you know, a lot of Latinos may not have access to see doctors, and so they may not understand their screening numbers. And so if they don't have, like, an illness that they can pinpoint to, they feel like they're healthy. So if you don't have, like, a yearly checkup, then if you, and you had, like, maybe a headache, and that's how you got, well, you consider yourself healthy, but you don't, may not really know that perhaps you are building that you may your numbers may not, may not look good initially because chronic disease doesn't happen overnight. They are built over a, a time period in your lifetime, and so a lot of our families may feel healthy, and then later on when they are able to see a doctor or they go to health fair and they have a screening, and they see that oh my God my sugar levels are really high, but you know. They kind of went along with their lives and what's normal becomes almost normal and then they see a big difference. They may not really understand 
you know, because it it, it just happens with uh, not in a slow way. And so by the time to get to see a doctor, sometimes their chronic disease is pretty severe. So it's really uh, about access. And so a lot of people have, unless they feel sick, they feel like, well, I'm not sick, I'm healthy. Right. So... So it's just the feeling that it is. It's that, again, another snowball that's a really slow build. And it's a scary thing when you're not checking on yourself in a regular way, the way you would a car. Yes. And, you know, culturally, and I think it happens culturally with just as a gender thing, women, we tend to take care of everybody but ourselves. And so, you know, we, looking at women, they take care of their kids, they do all these things, and then they feel like, well, you know, I don't have enough money. So this money needs to go to my kids or my mother or someone in the family that may be dealing with something. And there's, you know, you're like the last one to think that you need help yourself to go through any kind of prevention or uh, to see doctors. And that's definitely something we see in the female community. Yes, that's a gender thing. (laughs) It's definitely definitely a gender thing. And then I think, you know, from from what I understand, there's some other barriers um, that the Latino women may face from a a cultural perspective um, around fear or around embarrassment. I I think a lot of, you know, uh, some women may have this fear that if they get a screening and then the screening may turn something like they need to go see a doctor. They may have this fear that what if it's something really bad and I can't afford it. You know, I I cannot see a specialist. And so a lot of times people like they go in denial and they're like, you know, I'd rather not find out. Which which is never never a good option. No, no. And so I think, you know, the work that you we're gonna collaborate with is going to be such important work for us. I'm just so honored to be able to do this because we feel like if we get the message out about the services that we get through you all, they're free, you know, because that word means free. You can be free of thinking that you have to pay for something. And in in Spanish means gratis. And when you see that word, you're like, oh, it's gratis, you know, because we don't get a lot of gratis things. And so um, we're like, yes, you know, we, we're going to be able to uh, get people to have access, to have prevention, to have education about what it is, what it, you know, the whole process and what to do afterwards. And so it's like a lot of support for them. So I'm, I'm just really, we're really, really excited to be able to do this. So free and gratis. Yes. I totally can't gratis. speak Spanish. Yes. I'm trying. Um, but I think it also, um, maybe in this context, it also means freedom of fear, freedom from from fear, because yes. the other piece can be taken care of. Yes, because if we have enough, you know, because we're going to be doing a lot of education. And, you know, a lot of times when you're ignorant about something, you have a fear of the unknown. But once you find out the facts, then you become free of that fear because you understand what's happening. And so I think a lot of it is just, uh, uh, having the sharing that information with our community, and then uh, you know helping them through the process and uh, helping them figure out how they want to handle that, 
I know that we already have uh, some parents at one of our campuses, the schools that we do collaborations with. They are ready. They were ready to set up the mammogram screenings, and now they want to tell everybody because they understand that they have to take care of themselves in order to to take care of their families. So, but this is one way you're not taking away from your family. You're not taking any money away from your family because this is free for them. And that's such a big thing. Breast cancer, specifically for Hispanic women, is the leading cause of cancer deaths. And so this is a big one. Yes, it is. It is. I know that um, my husband's uh, mom, she died when she was 52, and she had eight sisters, and all of them died in the early 50s from it. Wow. Yeah. And, yeah. and and it's such a shame because you think about, you know, what if, you know, did they get screened? Was the breast cancer caught soon enough? Because statistically, just statistically, not all of them should have died. Yeah. I You know, I remember, God, it happened a few years ago, but I remember the last one who passed away. Her name was Mary Ann. She was kind of expected it. Like, she knew she had that and she expected it. And I think she lived in a very rural area where there was not a lot of, there were not a lot of services. And so, um, yeah, it's sometimes, you know, it's all about education and access and prevention. It's it's also interesting because I've met a, a number of women in the Hispanic community who found a lump or they were, they, they did go get screened. And then they were afraid to go back once they got the positive yes. Yeah. Um, Yeah. You know, and and that's important, too, that just because there's a positive finding on a mammogram doesn't mean you have breast cancer. Right. And and I think also, you know, they have so many new new therapies, new that we, perhaps our community is unaware of. Mm -hmm. And so having that education about all the treatments and the success rate and all of that may not, we may not know about it. And so the more we talk about it and share that information, I think all these women, even though you have that fear, but you also have this other facts that can counteract that fear and say, oh, well, so-and-so had it, and guess what? She went through this, this, and this, and now she's doing She's been free for like three years. So they just, we just have to get that community to have the education and all the facts about, you know, how they can prevent it, how they can have access, and the whole process and what happens. And so I think that's like a big message for them. Then from the clinical side, uh, the clinical community as well, you know that there's, you know, I think it's important too to that the clinical community is reacting to the time frame and the needs of the Latino community to, to get screened or to get treated, whether it's for breast cancer or another health need, so that it's open late on uh, during the week or they have weekend hours. Or on Saturdays, mm-hmm. yes. You know, we were the federal navigators for Obamacare, and I can tell you that most people that came to enroll was, were after work or weekends because they work during the day. And so we were open late, and we worked weekends. And so I think as providers, if you were going to address an issue, you have to figure out when the community can best 
you can best meet their needs. And so um, I know we have providers in town that are open late now and that they, you know, so, um, yeah, we, we definitely have to understand how to work with people who, you know, a lot of our families have two jobs to make ends meet. So they may work all night cleaning an office and stay up and take care of their kids, go to school, and then they come home and go to sleep for a little while and they'll wake up again to go to work. And so, But they may have one day off only one day off, and we should be able to help them get what they need during the day off, which might be a different day, like or Saturday or Sunday. What does it take within the Latino community to earn to earn trust? They Here in, in Central Texas, um, this community certainly trusts you. Well, you know, I, I came from that community. I grew up in the Sleta in El Paso, which was, I'm a pretty old person, so I remember we were really poor, and I was a migrant worker. And, uh, you know, a lot of, you know, being in the community here in Austin, um, when I moved here to go to graduate school at UT, the first thing I did is, like, I wanted to see where all the other Latinos live and where they work, and I was in all the schools in in East Austin at that time. And so I think when they see someone that looks, you know, people when gravitate to people that look like them, understand their, their language, because language is a big issue for our community, too. And right now, the immigration stuff is also kind of, uh, you know, affecting a lot of their choices. And so I think for us, we are just like the community. We are part of the community. We look, we are the community. We are community health care workers. We're people that we train, our organization trained, that were already leaders within that community that we wanted to support. And we felt like they were very wise, that they have a great deal of knowledge about their community, and that they themselves know how to best serve that community. And so um, I think a lot of the trust is that we are we're part of the community. We've been here for a long time. So what is, help us understand what a community health care worker is worker and, and how, how do they function? Because there will be people who are listening to this podcast who live in, in Michigan or California and may not know what we have here in Central Texas. Well, we are very fortunate that the state of Texas provides certification to lay people. And by mean lay people means people who might, for one reason or another, not have been able to attend uh, higher education. And so maybe they went to high school, maybe they didn't even finish high school, but maybe back home where they came from, they might have um, obtained some kind of higher degree. But the state of Texas doesn't require you to have, as long as you go through training programs, and we offer a training program. Uh, and ours is 251 hours, and uh, it is divided into eight areas, uh, communication, advocacy, service providing. There are different areas that you, uh, as a community health care worker, you have to have the skills to engage both. You're, you're sort of like the bridge between the community and providers. And so you have to be, you have to have a lot of skills to be able to <clears throat> work with community and also with a provider world. And a lot of times you find yourself not just interpreting language, but interpreting ideas, concepts, culture, you know. And so we wear both hats. We, are, we work with providers who wear the hat so that they can understand the community better, 
And then we work with the community so that they can understand the providers better because a lot of times providers, they do have a lot of, um, you know, barriers themselves and constraints themselves. A lot of it deals with them not having enough money. So communities sometimes feel like, oh, they're not spending the money. Well, they don't have the money, you know. And so we, we're in the middle with that bridge. And um, I think there's only six states that actually certifies community health care workers, and Texas is one of them. What a great program. It really sounds to me that it's – we talk about patient navigation in the breast cancer community all the time. Yeah. And it sounds like this isn't just – this is beyond patient navigation because not everybody that you're navigating is necessarily a patient. They're right. just they're just a person who needs help getting through the healthcare system, which as someone who speaks the language of the country I live in <laughs> proficiently is very confusing. <laughs> yeah. And a lot of them have been recipients of those services. So we you know, like we do a lot of Medicaid enrollments and a lot of our community healthcare workers were in Medicaid. They understand the whole system. And so they understand what worked and what didn't. Uh, I said that they have, like, PhDs and their knowledge of their community. And so because a lot of them were part of that system that we're trying to help them navigate. If there's something that we could change about, whether it's the healthcare system here in Texas or nationally, what what could we change or shift that would help the Latino community become healthier and ultimately help the country become healthier? I feel like, the you know, each community, whether it's a Latino community, Asian community, other communities, communities of different, different communities, I think each community is very wise, very has wisdom, and they know what works for them. And so we have to really listen to what they're telling us about what their needs are and how to solve those needs. And then help policymakers, help those communities be heard and structure programs for them. I know that for community healthcare workers, for a long time people use them as volunteers. And we don't. We feel like community health care workers have to have some economic development. So I would rather have community health care workers working on health issues of their community that they know how to fix rather than to have them go have to go clean an office, and that's their job. And so providing economic development for the community so that they themselves solve their own problems because they know how to solve their problems. They just may not have the right people that can help them who are making policy or who are looking at systems change. So really, it it comes from the community. It all starts right at home. Yes. No matter what your zip code or how much you have in your wallet, you should be able to access the breast health care, all health care for that matter, that you need. It should also be true, regardless of the color of your skin or the cultural community you call your own. Thanks, Whole Logic, for making each and every podcast happen. And to iHeart Media Studios here on South Congress in Austin for hosting us each and every time. We couldn't do it without you. Thanks, Mike, who always hangs out with me and makes it sound so good. Thanks to the Coman Austin team. 
who works behind the scenes, but mostly to our donors who save lives every day by investing in the work that we do. I hope that you're going to follow us. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and even YouTube now. Tell us what you think, what you want to hear. We love hearing from you. Susan G. Komen Austin is an affiliate of the Susan G. Komen Breast Cancer Foundation. And if you need help, resources, information, or just have a comment, reach out. You can find us at podcast at komenaustin.org or visit us on the web at komenaustin.org. Thanks so much for listening. And until next time, always be more than pink. <laughs>